Welcome to the Weird Works Podcast. I'm Dr. Christy, your host. Join us for conversations about alternative and sometimes controversial healthcare topics. This podcast will provide the evidence that you need in order to make informed decisions about your health, to empower you with the facts that you need to advocate for your health, and to encourage you that there is hope your body heals. Join us from experts from all things weird, as well as the testimonies of people with stories of radical healing who were once told that perhaps their condition was a death sentence, that they would just need to live with it, or that drugs and invasive surgery were the only answer. Let's get into agreement that if there is something natural and non-invasive that could be helpful, that it could be your first option rather than your last resort. Hello, everybody. I have a very special guest here today, Bill Schindler. You can tell with his shirt, Eat Like a Human. We're going to have an awesome conversation. He's like completely in alignment with what we talk about. So this is a total gift. And he's got a really unique background. So um, Bill, he's an experimental archaeologist and a food anthropologist, what I had never heard of before. So I'm going to let him tell you what that even means. Um, And he taught at Washington College in Chestertown, Maryland, where you live right now right? Yep, absolutely. And his restaurant is there also. Um, But he created the Eastern Shore Food Lab, which is an innovative teaching, learning, and production space. He has traveled all over the world from Mongolia to Kenya to the jungles of Thailand, and he learned in person from the people in all those places what they eat, the tools that they use to prepare the foods, and also the methods that our ancestors used. Um, Bill is the author of a new book. I think it's new called Eat Like a Human. It's mm-hmm. awesome. I love it. Um, and he's also the owner of his brand new restaurant and teaching facility called Modern Stone Age Kitchen in his hometown. And I think he opened right in November last year. Well, the book came out in November. We are officially open for girls. Uh... Yeah, so really cool developments in his world. And so I always just like to share with our audience, like, why did I bring Bill on in the first place? And I was writing the why, and then I found his own very quote that said it better and more eloquently than I did. So I'm just going to share it with you. So Bill says that today our relationship to food is filled with confusion and insecurity. Vegan or carnivore, vegetarian or gluten-free, keto or Mediterranean, fasting or paleo. Every day we hear about a new ingredient or food that is good or bad for us and a new diet that promises us everything. Our conversations are filled with a dizzying array of perspectives on food. Couldn't be in more agreement on that. And so we just love his perspective. We're going to talk a little bit more about it's not necessarily what we eat, but how we eat it. So good conversations to be had. So, Bill, first, just kind of share your backstory. Like, what got you interested in diet and nutrition? Were you always like a super health nut? Tell us a little bit. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. So, my background is varied, and it's it, I, I've run down a whole bunch of different tracks throughout my entire life, which for many years they seemed like they were all you know, going in separate directions. But what's wonderful, and what I what I I can't wait to share with everybody today is that it turns out that they all were leading towards the same sorts of answers that I've been searching for my entire life, how to nourish myself, my family, and my community in the most ethical and sustainable and nourishing way possible. So um, I grew up um, uh, I grew up in New Jersey, right, right by the shore. 
in the 1970s and 1980s, during a time when the nutritional advice that the FDA, the USDA, the doctors, nutritionists, as we all know, was, was absolutely horrid. And my parents were very uh, interested and did everything they could to try to um, raise me and my sister in the healthiest way possible. It's just they were getting incredibly horrible advice. And they listened to all of it, right? We went from, uh, you know, butter to margarine because that was healthier. Um, we had ultra, you know, we, there was pasteurized skim milk. We did, you know, lean meats, all of those things that we're supposed to be doing. Tons of spinach, tons of kale and Swiss chard in the soups and all these things, lots of nuts. And uh, it turned out I, I was a heavy kid. I was an incredibly heavy kid with a really unhealthy relationship with food. And um, it, it, this persisted. And I went through a lot of different stages throughout my life from, you know, at one point I was a division one athlete for Ohio State. I wrestled for them. Um, and then after I was finished you know, competing in college, all the weight poured back on with all sorts of metabolic disease. And, and we can go into detail at any point if you'd like to. But the point of the story is I spent the per first 25, 30 years of my life um, eating food because I like to eat food, eating food because I knew I had to but never ever feeling like it nourished me. And I had incredibly poor health, which just got worse with age. And always at the entire entirety of this time, I was searching to try to answer the question what I should eat. I just knew in, in, if somebody could tell me, if somebody really could tell me exactly what I should be eating, all of my problems would go away. I get lean and trim and fit and feel better and you know all, all of that. And that was an incredibly naive, thought for a lot of different reasons. One is to think that if what he did was, you know, get a six pack, all your other problems in your life will go away, which was silly. But the other was, and this is where um, I think something that I can, a new voice that I can bring to this conversation today is I realized that I was asking for 30 years of my life the wrong question. I was asking what I should eat. Now, this, that is an important question. It's a question that everybody trying to get healthy wants to answer. It's the, it's the question that or, or yeah, once answer, it's a question that all nutritionists and doctors and everybody are trying to tell you, you know, answering for you. But the, the problem is that humans are completely different. Our relationship with food is completely different. The, our, our digestive tract works in a completely different way to nourish our bodies than other animals do. And the question we should be asking, in addition to what we should be, I'm not saying that's not important, it is. But by itself, in a vacuum, that question is actually inanswerable. Mm -hmm. The question we should be asking ourselves is how we should be eating. And this is where I spent my entire life in the woods, hunting and fishing and trapping and foraging. I've been foraging for almost 40 years. My father had me outside all the time. I be became an archaeologist. I have a PhD in archaeology and anthropology. Um, I've done a lot of work all over the world, archaeological work, but also ethnographic work. My entire family has lived and worked with indigenous and traditional groups all over the world. And what we realized is that humans, and we can, again, dive deep into this at any point, but the, the, the takeaway message here is that humans have one of the least efficient digestive tracts of any animal on the planet. But at the same time, we have these incredibly huge bodies, and more importantly, these incredibly huge brains. Both of them require massive amounts of not only nutrition, but the right nutrition to fuel properly. And we don't have digestive tracts that can allow us to do it without the aid of some sort of technology, without the aid of some sort of processing. So the how I'm talking about are things like how do we take grains, if you eat grains, and turn them into the most safest and most nourishing form possible? How do we take something like dairy and turn it into the safest and most nourishing form possible? How do we include animals in our diet in not only the most 
safest and most nourishing way possible, but also the most ethical and sustainable way possible. And these are the questions, these are the questions that you can answer through archaeology, through anthropology. And that's what I've literally spent my life trying to do. It's so fascinating. You know, I love it because you meet with your guidance counselor, like maybe towards the end of high school and you're supposed to figure it all out. Like what do you want to be for life? And like, I don't think anybody ever said archaeology was an option, you know? So I think it's really <laughs> cool just to meet people and say they went on a completely unique and different path. But I also love meeting people that are just on fire and passionate mm -hmm. to bring help to others through all the things that they've studied. And you've been a walking testament. I think like a lot of my colleagues and healers of like, you put your health and your body back together through your work, you know, and most of us who really are super passionate have our own story similar to yeah. yours. So thank you for living and breathing and preaching. Okay, so the title of your book is Eat Like a Human. You kind of alluded to it. Um, I kind of marked down, like as I was reading, I think that there's like four steps to what you meant by what does it mean to eat mm -hmm. like a human, which is really like what our ancestors ate, you know? So right. first you said finding food that is as nutrient dense as possible. So do you want to touch on that a little bit? Absolutely. So remember, this is what I used to tell my students when I would you know, approach this, this topic. Think about what it would be like if I took anybody listening and stripped you down naked and stuck you in the middle of the woods and said, eat. Right? What would you, now, let's pretend that you knew all the different edible plants and you knew all the different behavior patterns of all the animals that are out there, just mm -hmm. with only your nails and your teeth and your eyesight and your muscle. I mean, if you have high glasses, we're taking the eyeglasses away. I mean, you literally have nothing but your body and said, eat. Every one of us, I don't care if we're Bear grills. I don't care if we won four seasons in a row of alone. I don't care if we did Naked and Afraid and, you know, came out on top. It doesn't matter. Every single human on this planet would die of starvation because we cannot access the nutrients from our environment using just our, our fingers and our teeth without some sort of technology. So what one of the um, types of technological advancements that we um, created through time is uh, those things that help us overcome our physical limitations and help us access all sorts of different resources from our environment. If you just had to rely on your fingers and your teeth and, 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 and get your food, yeah, you could pick certain berries, right? But remember, it's not like going in, don't go into the grocery store in the produce section and uh, fall under the assumption that you're operating like your, you know, hunter-gatherer ancestors were, because there's a lot of differences there. One of them is there's no seasons in the grocery store anymore. So by default, if we're foraging for our food, you are restricted to eating hyper-seasonally and hyper-locally. So things like berries are only available for a certain time of the year. Things like leaves are only available that are in the right state at a certain time of the year. So one of the types of, again, technologies that our ancestors created that allowed us to do all sorts of things was allowed us to access increasingly diverse and nutrient dense resources from our environment. Yeah. Okay. I love that. I don't want to go out in the woods and have to find my own food. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to talk about that later. So if you're already kind of checking out just because you're like, okay, I'm not going to hunter and gather and forage and all the things. Bill's oh, going to uh, tell you how you can implement all the things that we're talking about in your kitchen modern right now. And maybe even some different gradients for everybody, depending on where you are in your food journey. Because some people listening are already, you know, moving off the grid and starting to have sustainable gardens and we're in Florida, so you can grow all year long. Mm -hmm. Not all of our listeners are. You know, a lot 
of us are preparing foods in our home. Some people are already playing with fermentation. So hang on a minute and we're going to tell you how you can implement some of this, even though you're not Bill. You don't have to be Bill. Okay, second thing, preparing foods that using methods that render it safe. So talk about safety of foods. Okay, and this is one of the most important things. Um, so let, let me just start out by saying, yeah, you're absolutely right. I am not suggesting everybody runs out, strips off all their clothes, runs into the woods and try. It's not, that's not what I'm suggesting at all. Although anybody who wants to start foraging or hunting or trapping or doing any of those things, it's one of the most connected ways to be a part of your food system. But that's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm using is what, how we created the diet that built us as a species as a foundation to understand how we can operate in a modern world of modern grocery stores and, and modern Vitamixes and whatever food processors and, <laughs> and actually make the most of our food. So that thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. So as far as safety is concerned, this is incredibly important, especially when it comes to plants. My family and I, we are, we are omnivores. Humans are omnivores. We are omnivores, however, not by design, right? Other wild animals, the diets that they do best on are the diets that they're physically designed to eat. And that's how they get nourished. They have everything they need to get those foods and everything they need to inside to process those foods properly. Humans are different. We've outgrown our digestive tract and we started to do that a very long time ago. So we are not omnivores by design. We're omnivores by technology because we do things to our food before we eat it. We can take all of these other foods that we actually have no business eating and turn them into their safest and most nourishing forms possible. And that's really what it's all about. So as far as safety is concerned, every single plant on this planet has toxins. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't eat plants. And I know a lot of people will stop there and say, oh, we should all be, all be completely carnivores because that's not what I'm suggesting. Some of those toxins will kill you, right? If you eat the wrong mushroom, you're going to die. If you, eat the, uh, if you eat one that's a little bit better, but it still has issues, your kidneys are going to shut down, your liver shuts down, and you wish you were dead. So there's some nasty toxins <laughs> out there. There's right. also a whole bunch of plants that have toxins that are at a very low level that really are, are somewhat benign and don't cause an issue for us at all. But there's a large majority of plants that are actually in our diets today, and certainly in the past, that have issues, things like oxalates that... Um, will build up over time and wreak havoc, you know, years or, or decades later. Mm -hmm. So one thing that our, that our hunter-gatherer ancestors and anybody that forages today still, anywhere you are in the world, know is that plants have toxins and there's things we need to do to plants to make them as safe as they can be. And there's a whole bunch of strategies to do it. And there's a lot that people are already doing. Fermentation is a great detoxification strategy for certain toxins. Leaching is a great detox detoxification strategy for certain plant toxins. Mm -hmm. But so one of the things that allowed our ancestors to have uh, much more access to the plants in their world is when they realized, hey, I can do something to this plant and make uh, make it safer for me to eat and also uh, to, to allow those those nutrients that are in the, in the plants to be more available to us. Yeah. I just always think it's so amazing how our ancestors were so smart. Like, I feel like sometimes they were smarter than we were because they didn't have the, you know, they didn't have all the education and the science and the technology and everything to study all this stuff. But like, they knew what they could and couldn't do, which is so great. You know, and, and that's a, a really good point you bring up that people ask me all the time, how did they know what to do? How did they figure it out? Yeah. And I think a lot of times, the strategies they developed were intentional. They're like, okay, this makes more sense than this and we're going to start doing it. But more often than not, um, you, know, you and me sitting here having this conversation were the result 
of our ancestors that did it right, right? There was, there was a whole bunch that were doing other things that didn't have babies or successfully didn't, you know, continue on for hundreds or thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands of years. So there was a lot of different, you know, scattershot people doing different things, but those that did it as to the best of their ability, created the safest, most nourishing diets possible that supported not only massive body growth and brain growth, but also population growth mm -hmm. are the ones whose ancestors, I'm sorry, descendants are here to have conversations like this. And we look back and say, hey, you know, they did it right. Well, yeah, they did. There are certainly people that are our ancestors who didn't do it right, but they're not, they don't have any, you know, buddy here to talk about them. Yeah, that's right. Well, a lot of inventions were kind of by accident or things that either like, oh, cool, like if you light that on fire, this happens. And then there were also like, I'm sure detrimental <laughs> things no, that yeah. happen. And then we are not talking about those things like you said today. So that's a good point. Okay. And then we talked a little bit, this is kind of intertwined in the first two, but making the nutrients from the foods that we eat available to our bi bodies called bioavailability, right? And this is so incredibly important and probably the most important part of all this. Um, uh, what's his, who, who, uh, what's, who wrote uh, Planet Paradox? Um, oh yeah. I know the uh, book. Ah, uh, shoot. Uh, any, uh, uh I'll remember just a moment, but if anybody's read Plant Paradox, there's some really important takeaways from that book. One of one of my favorite parts of that book is uh, Stephen Gundry, is that yeah. he he makes, I, I used to call it the can of soup effect, but he, he does a better job than I do. He says, you know, if you're going, when you put food into your mouth, it doesn't mean all the nutrients that are in that food get to fuel your body in, in, in the best way possible. A lot of things have to fall into place in order uh, for you to maximize the nutrients that are actually in that food. So I call it the can of soup effect, the idea that you look at a, a can of something and it has labels and this much fat, protein, vitamin A, but whatever it is, and that you have this idea that if you put it all in your mouth, all of that goes to wherever it needs to be in your body and gets used. His example was um, he used, I think it was the Lincoln Tunnel. He's like, look, if you're in New Jersey and you're trying to go to Manhattan and you go into the Lincoln Tunnel, um, he says, you know, you, you don't go, you, you don't go into the Hudson River, right? It's you, you go into the Lincoln Tunnel. And the only thing you can be guaranteed is that you're going to come out the other end and you're going to be in, in Manhattan. And it's kind of like eating food. You, you put food into your mouth. It's going into your digestive tract. And the only thing you can guarantee is at some point it's going to come out the other end. Um, but hopefully. if you, if, if, yeah, hopefully, hopefully, right. So the, the, the food has to be in the right state for your body to make the best use of its nutrients and your digestive tract has to be operating, you know, at its peak in order to make the best use of those nutrients. And this is really important for, for plants. Again, plants do have nutrients in them. Absolutely. But in many cases, those nutrients in those plants are either a not easily accessible to our bodies, which means it needs a little bit of help things like cooking or fermentation or whatever. And quite um, sometimes, or sometimes those nutrients are in the wrong state for our bodies to make use of it. And a fantastic example is maize, the most widely grown grain in the world. Um, and has been, this is a longer story, but has been responsible for um, massive, when, it, when, it's, when it's dominated diets over the past several hundred years, when it left the new world, it is responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths and millions of people be, uh, becoming sick 
from a deficiency of niacin in the diet. And the problem, the crazy thing is that there's niacin, niacin in maize. It's just in a state that's inaccessible to our bodies unless we process it using an ancestral approach called nistomalization, which turns niacin into niacin that can be used. So it's, it's a, that's a fantastic example of here's a food that's the most widely grown grain in the world, has been eaten for a very, very long period of time. But in the past several hundred years, after the explorers brought maize from the new world away back to Europe, without the technology needed to process it properly, there's been massive suffering and massive death for hundreds of years and it just needed to be processed properly. So those, those technologies that allow, our, our guts are 60% the size that they should be for the bodies that we have, right? 60% the size and the size of our guts are directly related to how much food we can eat, how long it can sit there, how well it's going to get broken down, how well the nutrients are going to be absorbed. And the only way that we are able to fuel this body and these brains um, you, without the aid of those guts, right, those huge guts, is because we can process our food properly to release those nutrients and make them easily accessible to our bodies. I think we should pause here and have you give the example of the cow's gut. I listened to another podcast interview with you and you were talking about why they have all those different stomachs yeah. and what happens and that kind of thing. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I would, I'd be happy to. So <laughs> the, the first time I actually even started to think about this, we were when I was writing the book, I was on sabbatical. We were living in this little, beautiful little cottage in, in Ireland and it was on this, this larger farm and, and every day you know, I'd walk back onto the farm and it was, I mean, it's Ireland, it's covered in the most beautiful grass in the world, right? Now these beautiful cows and they're sitting there eating the grass. And, you know, I'm, I'm coming from this foraging mentality. I've been foraging for so long and I'm looking at those cows and thinking, my gosh, they're supporting these massive, and these weren't even big cows, but massive bodies by eating just that grass. And I'm thinking to myself, well, if I sat there and ate that grass, I would fill my stomach. I'd be, I wouldn't be satiated, but I feel full probably uncomfortably full and I would die of starvation because my body can't access any of the nutrients through right. the, those cell walls in that grass even though it has nutrition I would die of starvation feeling full again full is weird but so this is what it, this is what a cow does when a cow eats grass it is perfectly designed to not only can eat the grass but also get the maximum amount of nutrients from that grass so, or grass and, and tough vegetable materials in, yeah. in general so they chew it and in their mouths they have their palate, the, the roof of their mouth is kind of corrugated, like corrugated cardboard. And they have these massive teeth of the right shape too. And they sit there and they eat. And even the way their jaw moves, all of that is designed to physically break through as best they can down this tough vegetable material. And then they swallow it and it goes into the, now a cow has four chambers in its stomach. And in the first chamber is called a rumen. And that's uh, nothing but a fermentation chamber. So all of this chewed up, physically broken down, tough vegetable materials go into the rumen and then they fer it ferments mm -hmm. and then it ferments for a little while and then they throw up in their mouths right they come they regurgitate what's mm -hmm. being digested chemically and it goes back into their mouths partially broken down chemically and physically now and they chew it some more and that's called chewing the cud mm -hmm. and they break it down physically then it goes back to the rumen and it ferments and it goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until it's in the right state and when it is in the right state for their bodies to actually fully make use of it then it goes through the rest of the chambers in the stomach and into the intestines and all of that, which operates, you know, at that point, really very similar to ours, right? Past, but the, their their palate, their teeth, their first chamber in their stomach, and that action of 
kind of throwing up in their mouths back and forth is what allows them to eat that grass and derive the nutrition, to, again, to fuel these massive bodies. The other thing that they do mm-hmm. is they eat for most of the day. Most of their waking day, they're eating, right? So forever, <laughs> <laughs> forever they're always eating. So here we are as humans. Again, you're not going to sit there and try to eat grass, but there are tough vegetable materials that if we were going to try to eat them raw, mm-hmm. and even if we could get enough nutrients from it, we'd be eating for like 80% of our waking day. We'd literally be engaged in the act of chewing to even get the nutrients that we need. So it's, it's a really great example of how something as simple as cooking or a Vitamix or a knife can really help or fermentation can help. And that's the thing, you know, the, the, the cow does that in its stomach. What do we do? We, in, we invent the act of fermenta- fermenting on our countertops and we put things in mason jars and we dig holes in the yard and bury, you know, big clay vessels and make kimchi and all of that. Mm-hmm. Part of the fermentation is because it's, you know, increases the probiotics and it tastes good and it smells good and the texture is fantastic. But a large part of it is pre-digesting that food just like that cow was doing to get it ready to go into our digestive tracts and allow us to access the nutrients. Are you tired of going from diet to diet to come up short and feel worse than you did when you started? Or are you just lost with all the mixed messaging out there today and not sure what's best for you and your lifestyle? Maybe you were told that you had to live with your symptoms and accept feeling less than your typical vibrant self. Well, I'm here to tell you the truth. As a practicing doctor of chiropractic, kinesiology, and clinical nutrition, I see people all the time that are just like you, frustrated and starting to lose hope. But I do want you to know that you do not have to give up on the you that you know you could be. There is a way to truly achieve optimal health and also to live your life. I want to share with you how by doing some small doable adjustments and taking on a new approach to enjoyable and non-restrictive eating, we can help you start feeling better and begin to see changes in your waistline and start releasing weight in as little as 14 days. It just is awesome when you when you think about it. I think that's the problem too, is like people are just so busy and all over the place. And you mentioned about how, you know, we're just so disconnected from our growers and our food sources. We're just on the run, like nonstop. And people don't stop to think about, you know, the body and what it needs and why do we eat in the first place? Like we have a lot of social cues and a lot of other things of why we eat and comfort and emotional things, but we have, we're eating to fuel our body. That's vital mm-hmm. for our survival. And what you put in is what you get out. So your quality of health and life and vitality is directly related to what you put in your mouth. But now Bill's teaching us how you get it there too. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's the kind of thing where, where that how becomes so important because, you know, we have these conversations and I don't care how much science we put into it, how long we're talking about it, you know, whatever. If we have these conversations surrounding food and optimal, you know, human health and diet and all this, and we say we say things in there like, all right, should should, should humans be eating bread? Like, should humans have bread? Should humans eat grains? Should adult humans be consuming dairy? Right. And, and that's the, the level of the conversations. And then we dive in and have, you know, we have arguments and we write articles and all this. But the reality is. How are those grains being prepared is the key to answering that question. Should humans eat at any level something like a a yeasted white bread, like Wonder Bread? Absolutely not. It has no business being in our diet at all. But are you talking about a long, wild fermented loaf of sourdough bread? It is a completely different food. 
right? We still call it grains. We still call it bread. It is a completely different food. If you want to have that conversation, we can dive deep into that conversation. Dairy, it's, is, you know, is it, is it weird for humans to adult humans to consume dairy from other animals? Absolutely. It's weird. It's just as weird as, you know, us taking a monocrop of, of a grass and growing it in a field and then grinding it and making bread out of it. It's just as weird and requires the same amount of technology, but is it weird? Yes. Are there a whole bunch of, of, of adult humans that are lactose intolerant? Absolutely. There are in fact, 60% of adult humans are lactose intolerant. Does that mean we shouldn't consume dairy? Well, that we don't have enough information to have that conversation. Are we talking about uh, ultra pasteurized skim milk? We have no business. We humans have absolutely no business drinking ultra pasteurized skim milk. We're getting nothing out of it whatsoever. Fermented dairy, especially if it's fermented high quality raw dairy, is a completely different food that the processing, the creation of things like kefir or yogurt or even traditional cheeses mimics what we humans and every other mammal infant do when we're infants to make it as safe and nourishing as possible. It's a completely different conversation. That's the how. And here's what, here's what I think is really a really important takeaway for everybody. If you're, um, you know, is it, is it life or death to, to, to ferment your vegetables? Pro probably not. Is it life or death to nishtamalize your maize or to stoke your grains or do those sorts of things? You know, doing that one thing isn't going to, transform your health overnight and, and make all these differences. If you're, if you are a vegan, making sure that you're approaching vegetables in the safest, most nourishing way possible is life or death or is, you know, a very important for, for nourishment. But if you're, if you're truly practicing a very omnivorous diet, getting foods from, from everywhere, doing that one act of fermenting your vegetables, isn't going to completely transform your life overnight. But the, the key is for three and a half million years, and I know this is incredibly hard for people to grasp time that you know, I can't even grasp time that's that, that vast, but for three and a half million years, almost every single prehistoric technology ever invented had something to do with food. And it was almost always towards making, you know, getting more diverse and nutrient dense foods and doing things to those raw materials to make them as safe and nourishing as possible. And when I mean nourishing, I mean uh, bioavailable and nutrient dense almost every single technology. So everywhere in our ancestral diets, when, when we were getting these resources coming in, there was a lot of work going into those resources to make sure that they were ready for our bodies. Mm -hmm. Here we are in a food system, a modern food system, where there's a massive input of technologies everywhere we turn, but almost always is towards the purpose of making somebody else money or increasing shelf life or uniformity or packaging, whatever, at the expense of things like nutrient density at the expense of things like bioavailability. So the, that one thing maybe isn't gonna make a difference, but everywhere we turn around in our diets, there are nutrients getting taken out or they're at least not getting uh, processed the right way for our bodies to access them. And then when you get that day after day, meal after meal, month after month, decade after decade, we find ourselves as adults with all these issues, including being malnourished. It is the, It should be impossible for a animal humans, any other, to be obese. I mean, it, it, it should be impossible because if you're eating a nutrient-dense diet that makes you satiated, right, then it should be impossible. The modern food system has definitely figured out how to make that happen and make it happen well. But what's even crazier, and I mean, so if you think about it, it's unfathomable that it can even happen, and it's happened for now for the first time ever in the history of the, of, of the world, 
that we can create in the same person obesity and malnutrition. That means the food that we're eating is so nutrient free that we're eating enough of it to be obese. And at the same time, our body is not being nourished. That's the modern food system that we're facing. That's what our kids are facing. That's what's happening in the schools and cafeteria and everywhere. And here we are trying to figure it out. So it's these little things, it's fermentation, it's cooking properly, it's eating, you know, uh, nose to tail, it's nishtamalizing, it's making sourdough bread, it's fermenting our dairy, it's those sorts of things that really compound and make a difference over a lifetime. I love it. It's totally true, right? Like all the things you do are cumulatively cumulatively working for you or against you. It all adds up. And so it's just like, are you going to continue to learn and adopt new habits and behaviors and knowledge to move you forward in a positive way? Or are you just going to kind of accept what there is and throw your hands up and be like, oh, it's out of my control. It is what it is. It's too difficult, you know? So I totally agree with you. Well, and I heard you say kind of like in one of your, um, I don't know if it was a podcast or in your book, but you kind of said we started going astray during the industrial revolution and I got thinking about that and it was true right because that was the shift from foraging and growing your foods and at least like knowing your farmers are bartering for food to purchasing our food right and that was also like a mental shift in people it is it's a mental shift and a huge uh, a huge gap between people and their food, where it comes from, who's growing it, how it's processed, all of that, and how it's prepared. And that gap continues to grow. And to me, mm-hmm. the most significant change in our food system, the most detrimental thing that's ever happened to our food system, the thing we have to, to repair first to make real significant, long-lasting change is that, is that, um, is that disconnect, right? So mm-hmm. when, when we're, whether you're gatherers or scavenger gatherers or hunter gatherers, just how our ancestors cut our food for 99.9% of the time, you know, um, upright walking intelligent species of walking the planet, there was a direct connection. Like somebody in your family or in your group directly got all the food that you were eating that either hunted it or gathered it or cooked it or processed it or whatever they did. So you were never more than, you know, one person away. In most cases, you had a direct connection yourself to everything that you ate. That comes with massive knowledge and that comes with massive empowerment, right? You know what you're doing. You know what the, you know, the consequences of your actions as well. It's only good for you, but it's good for the environment. You know, if you did this to your food and ate it, then you didn't felt like this and you either do it again or don't do it depending on the result. If you over harvest in in an area and come back the same year to to do it again, you say, oh, hey, I over harvested. Maybe I should pick a little bit less. I mean, it, it, it works really, really well for everybody involved. When we start farming at about 12,000 years ago, all of that begins to change. Now, there's a lot of pluses and minuses about farming. We can have long conversations about that. But for connection, this is really, really important. When, when we start farming about 10 to 12,000 years ago, in almost every case, um, we select for annual grasses to farm. We create monocrops of rice in Asia or things like barley and different kinds of wheat in Europe or uh, maize in the, in the Americas. And it, it's because it's storable. It's because you can create a surplus. So all of a sudden you can take a segment of the population and have them work harder than everybody else mm-hmm. and create this food that is a surplus. And then other people can be freed up to do other things. And that's how we learn about it in eighth grade. That's how we learn about it in high school. And we learn about it in a very positive way, right? The, you know, for some people to work really hard to feed everybody's, you know, um, this, this, um, 
you know, wonderful thing. And then all these other people are freed up to write poems and, and paint paintings and tell stories and do all these other things, which, which is, that's fabulous. But the, or the underlying thing that we're, nobody's talking about is, yeah, but those people now are disconnected from their food, right? And, and that gap continues and continues and continues to grow. And now here, we, then in the 1700s, we hit the industrial revolution. And then we, most of, you know, that intensifies, agriculture intensifies, shipping food intensifies, you know, all those things intensify to the point that most people on the planet are buying their food. We, they, be, they become consumers and that distance gets compounded over and over again. And here we are in a place trying to figure out how we can feed ourselves, how we can feed ourselves in an ethical way, how we can feed ourselves in a sustainable way. And we don't know, and I mean, some people certainly do, but most people do not know where their food is coming from other than maybe a label that some advertising marketing scheme has put on there. They don't know who's growing it. They don't know who's processing it. They don't know who's packaging it or shipping it or even putting it on the shelf in the grocery store. We know the person, if we go to the same grocery store at the same time every week, we might know the person that checks us out of the cash register. Yeah. But th that's our connection to our food. And we're trying to have these conversations. The other, you know, not only does that mean that there's a, um, uh, a problem with that connection, but it also that that distance and that you know from where our food comes from and our food knowledge also gives everybody else uh, the power to tell us what we should be eating, right? Mm -hmm. What we should eat. You should eat this. You shouldn't eat this, and can control us, you know, through through that way. Yeah. Well, I was just get, I was kind of thinking the same thing as you were saying it. Like we don't know them, but also they don't know us. So what level of responsibility or care for our health, well-being do they really have? You know, like if they don't have to look you in the eye the next week at the farmer's market or whatever, and be like, hey, how did that beef sit with your family? Or did you enjoy <laughs> the dairy or whatever? Like they really don't, they can kind of hide behind all of the processes and the layers of detachment. And suddenly yep. like you're putting blind trust in whoever put that food in a can or package. And then again, like we have children who literally don't even know that food came from the earth, you know, yep. like they don't know that food didn't come from a box or a can or a package. And, and how do we expect them to, you know, their, their distance from their food is further than, than their parents. And, you know, it, it just, it has just gotten worse over time. And, you know, there's been so many studies done and, you know, you can read about these things all the time, but, you know, kids not knowing, you know, that their carrot sticks come from an actual carrot that came out of the ground and what it looked like and all those sorts of things or an egg that came out of a chicken. Um, heck, I, I know adults that don't understand the, the, where the eggs come from in the chicken and the whole thing. But the other part of it is that there's a huge, um, unfortunately, this is, it, it, there, there's a huge dichotomy in our, in our people that really care about food, you know, and, and sustainability and all this either right now, many of us fall into either uh, a, a vegan camp or a carnivore camp, which are, are these really big extremes on so many levels. Um, I truly believe that everybody's just sitting down at the table and, and realize we have more in common than we have differences about our approach to food. But the thing that's really important, if you're going to eat meat, if you're going to include animals in your diet, which I think is incredibly important to do, it comes with a responsibility. It does. It comes with the responsibility to not only do it in the most nourishing way possible, but the most ethical and sustainable way possible. Mm -hmm. And that isn't 
going to the grocery store and just buying, you know, whatever new marketing scheme and free range of this and pasture this or on a label. And that, that, that's a piece of it, but it is a small step compared to what we can be doing. And I know, I know sometimes I need to be toned down a little bit, but just bear with me for just a second. You don't have to here. You can speak freely and openly. Okay. It's awesome. <laughs> I, I, I was very lucky that I grew up, even though I grew up in New Jersey, right by the shore, I had a father that wanted to take me hunting all the time. And I grew up hunting and butchering and doing all those things, which I'm very, very thankful for. It helped me view the world the way that I do today and connect in a very important way. Um, we have so many kids today that have absolutely no idea that a chicken, the lean chicken breast they eat three days a week is coming from a chicken. That's something that actually walked around on two feet or what that chicken looked like. They have no idea that the meat they're eating is actually the flesh from an animal that was touching up against bone and covered with skin and covered with hair feathers. And one of the things that, you know, one of the most popular classes that we, we have here are home butchering classes. It is, it is so, I think it's so incredibly important to bring home the, and this is dependent on whatever access you have or whatever comfort zone you have or whatever you're willing to start doing. But I think one of the most important steps you can take if you include animals in your diet is to take that next step to bring a larger piece of that animal into your home. So if you're eating chicken breast, look, just get a chicken, just get a whole chicken. And even if it's, you know, a free range, whatever from Whole Foods in, in the plant, bring home a whole chicken. If you're already doing something like that, go to the farmer's market and actually meet the farmer and get the chicken and, and you know, bring it home. Or if you're, if you make pulled pork, you know, at home or whatever, get a whole shoulder of a pig or God forbid, get a whole, we, we started years ago, bringing home a half a pig and slapping it on the counter and, and butchering it right there. And this, there's a lot of reasons why number one, and I know everybody wants to talk economics all the time. If you are really trying to support local farmers that are doing an incredible job, because they're doing it right, their, their meat costs more money. Mm -hmm. So if you want to help spread that cost out in, in a meaningful way, don't go buy a chicken breast from them, buy the entire chicken. And instead of one meal, you have three. You have, you know, you got your chicken breast, you got whatever else you're doing with the rest of the meat, and then you have bones and make bone broth from it and make soup from, right? Yeah. So there's, there's, there's an economic reason that helps not only you, but also helps the farmer because you're giving that money directly or at least a little bit in a, in a closer way to them so they get they get more of it. From a nutritional standpoint, um, if nutrient density is important, and I'm confident it is, mm -hmm. meat is more nutrient dense than non-animal foods, mm -hmm. but meat is the least nutrient dense part of an animal, right? As far as the edible portions go, the blood, the fat, and the organs, and I know this sounds a little bit strange, but it's the most nutrient dense bioavailable part. So if you're getting a larger part of the animal, you're bringing in things like fat and kidneys and heart and those sorts of things with it, then you are increasing um, the not only the, the nutrients that you have access to, but also uh, the bioavailability of those nutrients. Mm -hmm. But from a more, um, I don't know, from a standpoint that actually can also impact the kids beyond nutrition, we don't in many of our kitchens any longer have hair or feathers or skin or bones or blood or fat. We just bring in a styrofoam package with plastic of a lean chicken breast. And then we're expecting our kids to make that connection. That's such a strange connection. If you don't see it between meat and an animal and life and death and responsibility and all the other things that come with it. It's impossible to do it without them being in there. And the one thing I like to say is, listen, bringing the kids to the farm and seeing the animals is important. Meeting the, meeting the farmers is very important. Uh, butch, if, they, if you can have them butchering with you, that's fantastic. But even if they're not, even if they're watching TV and you're in the background in the kitchen, 
you know, that sound, there's a sound that a knife makes against bone. There's, there, you know, bringing an animal into the house, bringing a whole chicken into the house. It looks like a chicken. It doesn't have a head and feathers or feet, but it actually looks like the form of something that once was walking around or a shoulder of a pig looks a lot different than a pork loin, right? Mm -hmm. So those, those connections, even the ones you're, you know, the, your kids are always watching you. Those connections start to get made. And it, it, we're trying to create a generation that is, you know, nourished, that is acting responsibly and ethically and sustainably. That is one of the most powerful ways to do it. I love that. You're bringing up all these like fun childhood memories. And like, we grew up on a lake and we would fish. And my dad was like, if you're not going to put the worm in the minnow and take the fish off the hook, you're not fishing, you know? <laughs> and he's right. He's right. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And they would hunt geese off of the dock and make their duck blinds and all. And they'd come up and bring it on the porch and be ripping the geese open. And of course the kids like, we're like, oh, that's gross. But then we also like right up in there, like, what's that? What's that? You know? <laughs> so I do hear what you're saying. So let's talk about some of the things you already kind of started talking about it. And I love like the idea of like these gradient scale steps that people can start taking, mm -hmm. you know, depending on where they are in their journey and comfort level with all of this stuff. Um, maybe, maybe by food group or something like, sure. Wanted to, I love you love fermentation. So what things do you ferment and why? I, I ferment just about anything that'll bubble. <laughs> we, we have done so much work with indigenous groups and traditional groups all over the world and done a lot of ethnographic research and archaeological research. I have never come across anywhere in any of my work that um, where there's a traditional diet that doesn't have at its core fermentation at some level. It is the most powerful physical and chemical thing we can do to our food. And the beauty of it is all the work's being done by trillions of bacteria or bacteria and yeast for you. You just have to put it in the right environment and understand how it works. It's powerful. Most of, almost all of the major foods that we really enjoy as humans, even today, um, in their traditional form have been fermented. So, um, and when I say fermentation, I don't just mean sauerkraut. I love sauerkraut. I love kimchi. I love all of those things. So we'll start with fermented vegetables. Fermentation for vegetables accomplishes a whole lot of, of things. Number one, it improves the flavor. It improves the, um, the texture. It improves, if you do it right, it improves the aroma, all of those things. Um, it also creates an incredibly safe environment. Um, I know, and, and this is a hard thing to talk about because pe people love canning and canning is a very historic kind of homesteading thing to do. Yeah. There is, fermentation is a lot healthier than canning is. Canning mm -hmm. is a shortcut version of what you can do with fermenting. And when, when you're canning, you're putting something, quite often you're heating it, right? But you're, you're usually using vinegar to drop the pH to create an acidic environment that's safe against other pathogens, right? But when you're fermenting, you're creating that same acidic environment, but you're not doing it in 30 seconds by adding vinegar. You're doing it over 10 days, two weeks or so, where the lactobacillus bacteria is eating starch, eating carbohydrates and creating lactic acid and dropping that pH and doing all those other things at the same time. So if you're like kind of canning and you're liking it and you're loving it, think about fermenting. It's, it's one step towards a healthier, uh, more probiotic, you know, um, traditional version of it. But regardless, fermentation helps create that safe environment. It helps pre-digest the vegetables to get them, you know, so your body has to work less hard to access those nutrients. And depending on the toxins that are in the plants, mm -hmm. fermentation can also help, also help detoxify the plants. And another thing I'd mentioned very quickly too, 
um, with fermentation. We almost always think of fermentation being a, an acidic fermentation where you have certain bacteria that are eating usually sugars and creating lactic acid, dropping the pH and making it more acidic. There are also um, alkaline fermentations as well, um, which just, if people have sort of, you know, I, I'm, I've been making the kimchi and sauerkraut forever. I love it, but I want to take that next step and dive deeper into a rabbit hole. There, the fermentation world, I can guarantee you, you will be learning new things about fermentation for your entire life. It's one of the most exciting things to get into. So the vegetables can certainly be enhanced through, through fermentation. Americans spend $33 billion every single year on diets and weight loss products, and yet diets have a 95% failure rate. These statistics and my 18 plus years experience as a practicing doctor show me the real dangers of a cookie cutter approach to health and that truthfully, diets don't work. This is why I created the 9010 Lifestyle. For the people like you and me, busy and not willing to settle for less when it comes to our health and wellness. This program isn't just about feeling fantastic and or losing weight for good, it's a roadmap to upgrading your body and mind from the inside out while simultaneously suppressing the inflammation and suppressing the guilt that often comes with a high stress, high expectations, and high performance. The number one reason the 9010 lifestyle is so effective and easy to maintain is that it gives you back your willpower instead of forcing it. Another thing I'd like to mention with the vegetables is um, there's a lot of different ways to detoxify, a lot of different ways. So uh, with water-soluble toxins like tannic acid, you can, you can leach them in water. Um, cooking, in some, some cases, the toxin's heat sensitive and it's a lot safer if it's cooked than it would be in a raw state. Then um, there's things like nishtamalization for maize, which is the, literally the only way to, act, to um, make available the maximum amount of nutrients from maize um, or, or corn in order for our bodies to make use of them. Slicing, drying, all sorts of things we can do to vegetables depending on the toxin, but it is, um, but it is worth looking into. The other thing I would mention very quickly with vegetables before we move on is there are certain toxins that we haven't found or at least I haven't come across a, a, a suitable way to detoxify. Mm -hmm. um, there's not many, there are some though. And one of the most dangerous ones today that finally is getting the recognition that it deserves are, are, is the toxin oxalate. So oxalates are, have you talked about that at all on your podcast? We no. haven't, I don't think we've had no. anybody on the podcast, no. Well, I'll, I'll say something very quickly about it, just to plant a seed. But um, I would say Sally Norton um, is the leading expert in the U.S. and one of the leading experts in the world right now. Um, she's the person to talk to, and she actually just came out with a. Or her book is coming out December twenty seventh. You can pre order it now on Amazon. It's called Toxic Superfoods, okay. and it's brilliant. It, it is, and I, just to preface what I'm going to say in a couple of minutes, I had a five minute conversation with her about five years ago or so and it literally changed my life awesome. literally changed my life uh and we've had a bunch of conversations you know and we've done a bunch of stuff together since then but it was that conversation that really did so here very quickly here's here's um what oxalates are oxalates are um, a secondary compound produced by plants mm -hmm. to serve several different purposes most importantly for protection but uh, it also helps regulate minerals and other things in, in the plants but for humans 
they, they look like little tiny shards of glass under a microscope. And when you consume them, your body can rid itself of a certain amount of these on a daily basis if you're, you know, you, your body's healthy. But beyond that, our body has no way of actually getting it out regularly. So we grab it and put it, it puts it in different places because our body knows how dangerous these things are. They end up getting stored in extremities and joints mm-hmm. um, and organs of so kidney stones almost always are a result of oxalate toxicity, um, areas of trauma. So if, you, if, you, if you've been injured, a lot of times, I don't know exactly everything about why this operates this way, but a lot of times they'll get stored in that area, corneas, anyhow. Um, the problem, you eat this, you eat something that's high in oxalates, unless it's massively high in oxalates, um, you, don't, you don't feel anything the next day. And you don't feel anything in the next month or the next year, or sometimes a couple of years down the road. But if you're consuming a high oxalate diet long enough, and it builds up to the point where it causes massive trauma, massive, massive problems. So here are some examples of things that um, you can, uh, that are um, results of of oxalate toxicity. Number one is certain kinds of arthritis, rheumatoid, all sorts of joint pain, swelling, and here's the problem, and when I tell you the list of of, of foods that are high in oxalates, it's going to blow your mind, but we have created a situation today in the modern world where we've normalized dying for the last 40 years of our life. We've normalized pain when you're 30 or 40 years old, yeah. normalized, you know, your knees are clicking when you walk up the steps every night, you get up out of in the morning and, and your feet are swollen. Oh, that's just what 45 or that's what 50 is supposed to look like. It's not. No. Now there's other, there's a lot of things that can cause a lot of that. I, I understand that. But one of the things that can cause that kind of those kinds of issues are oxalates and the danger in oxalates are, you know, if you eat, if you eat a food and you get sick or feel something terrible half an hour later, five hours later, the next day, your mind can associate, oh, that the problem and I'm not going to have it anymore. Mm -hmm. But here's something that we've, you know, can, can sit there and takes a long time to build up. We can't make that connection. And then we've labeled so many of these high oxalate foods, superfoods that we are as a, as, as a species consuming more of these plants than we ever did before. Mm-hmm. And then we're causing these issues and then we're normalizing the pain and normalizing the getting old feeling. And then now we're in this issue. So um, gout, there's four different types of gout. We only really talk about one, the one that's caused by uric acid, but gout can also be caused by oxalates. So if, if you have been diagnosed with gout and haven't had a uric acid test, get one because it may not be uric acid. And the diet that they put you on, if, uh, if, if it's a uric acid one, it's exactly the wrong diet you should have. It's an oxidation. Exactly. Kidney stones. If you ever get calcium deposits, like on your fingers, those little bumps, right? That that's that's a, a an oxalate issue. Um, lot lots and lots and lots of issues. Um, here's the high oxalate containing plants. Spinach is one of the worst ones. Spinach, you know, a a a bowl of spinach has, I think, something like four or five times the amount of oxalates mm-hmm. that you should have for the day. People just and put then, in handfuls of that in their smoothies, like every single morning. Handfuls in their smoothies. It, it's that mentality. Some is good, more is better. We just start loading up the smoothies in the morning and oh my God, spinach is good. I'm going to have a spinach salad for lunch. And then all of a sudden this plant that, you know what, if you ate it for the two weeks out of the year that it actually grew in your area, right? Naturally yeah. wouldn't really be a big deal, but now you're eating it and taking the seasons out of the grocery store, labeled it a super food and you're eating it twice a day for 365 days out of the year. Um, So those are super high. Swiss chard is super high. Um, 
almonds are super high. And this is where it becomes a huge issue because so many people who um, are, have, have issues with gluten are starting to substitute the flour with like, you know, almond flour or people that don't want to drink milk are giving their kids almond milk. For the first time ever, um, we have children under the age of 10 presenting with kidney stones in families where they're drinking massive amounts of almond milk. So almonds are huge. Sesame seeds are huge. I mean, the list can go, there's, there's a lot of things that, um, but if just, I, the reason I plant this seed is because if you are experiencing some of those issues and you have a diet that's high in some of those types of foods, then, then at least think about it. it. There's no danger in taking the almonds out of your diet for a little while and seeing if you feel better. And, and uh, just see, um, I'm not, nobody's trying to sell anything. Nobody's trying to make you do something different. It's just, there's some of these foods that we're eating more. And here, you mentioned it earlier a little bit. Uh, I like to call them limiting mechanisms, but we, a lot of the limiting mechanisms that we've had forever Mm-hmm. And, and helping us keep certain things in our diet at a certain level are now gone. I mean, it used to be um, seasonality, right? If you ate completely seasonally, even if some of those foods were a little bit higher in a toxin or something, mm-hmm. you know, you have a period of the year where you eat a little bit more of it than a period of the year where you have none of it, your body rids itself. I mean, you have those sorts of things, eating locally, all that. Um, but the labor involved in actually, and this is where some of that disconnect really has wrecked havoc in our lives. The labor involved with planting food and growing food and harvesting food and processing the food is, is out of most of our conscience. And a lot of it's been replaced by machines. So here, here's a great example. If I told you, you know, nuts in general are, are, are fairly high in oxalates. If I said, Hey, and I love nuts, unfortunately, um, if I said, Hey, go, you know, here's a little bag, Here's two rocks to bang together and, and go eat some nuts and you go find a tree. Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing is you got to get, the, you got to collect all the nuts. And then most people don't realize that nuts don't only encase in a, in a shell, but they also have a hole around the outside. So you got to remove the hole mm-hmm. and then you got to crack through the, the shell and then you got to pick out all the nut meats and then you have something you can actually eat. Now, if I told you to do that, you spend an afternoon and you have enough to maybe eat, you know, part of a handful for, but now we have none of that processing Mm -hmm. and price isn't even, you know, nuts. When I was growing up, nuts were super expensive. We had a bowl of nuts at Christmas. And even then we had a nutcracker next to it and that's when we could, right. But now you can go to BJ's or Costco and buy a bag of nuts this big that already shelled for 10 bucks and eat handfuls of them at at will. So we don't have those limiting mechanisms anymore. So we have to have these sorts of conversations. Um, I went off track. I'm sorry. It's okay. I can talk to you for hours. (laughs) If it's okay, let me go through a couple of other food groups quickly. Not as long as that one. Um, so dairy is dairy. There's a, I, I deal with this in detail in the book. Um, and it is, it's, a, I do believe humans, the only food that we are perfectly designed to consume, you know, the diets that were designed, other animals are perfectly designed to eat certain things and get certain things and all of it. Um, and it works really well. The one thing that humans are perfectly designed to consume, and it's only for a short period of our life, is dairy, right? Drinking from, you know, drinking from our mothers, just like every every other mammal. And then when we get weaned off of our mothers, just like other mammals, we uh, lose or suppress the ability to uh, maximize the safety of dairy and also the nutrients of dairy if we consume it. Whether it's human milk or, or another animal milk, we, 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 we need some help. And the best thing that we can do is in order to take that dairy 
and consume it in the safest, most nourishing way possible is to, to ferment that dairy. That's exactly what's going on in our stomachs when we're, when we're drinking from our mothers. And if we ferment high, and it has to be high quality dairy, high quality raw dairy that's been fermented is the best, safest, most nutritious way to consume dairy. And when I say fermented, I mean yogurt, kefir, clabber, traditional cheeses, those are you know, in a great state. And if you're lactose intolerant, um, which 60% of the modern population around the world is, and it depends on where you're from and depends on a lot of different, different um, historical factors, whether or not you are, are lactose intolerant. But one of the things to keep in mind is in real traditional dairy ferments, the lactobacillus bacteria are, is actually eating the lactose and creating lactic acid for that process to happen. Mm -hmm. So a fully fermented dairy product is very low or in some cases, very low lactose or in some cases lactose free. Mm -hmm. So if you take yogurt and ferment yogurt for 24 hours, mm -hmm. it has almost no lactose in it whatsoever. And that's why if you have a lactose tissue, then you do much better on real cheeses and those sorts of things. But there are imposters. Mm -hmm. Obviously things, if it says, cheese food, cheese product, whatever. Well, That's not cheese. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a whole list. And even, um, and I, I just, not to dwell on this, but very quickly, there are so many things you can do as consumers to uh, make sure that you're getting the best version of the food, even if you're not going to make it. But um, mozzarella cheese is one of the most bastardized cheeses in the world. Mm -hmm. And it looked just, it's a much longer conversation, but if you're going to buy mozzarella cheese, do not let the packaging um, the price or the store you're buying it from be the factors that um, tell you whether or not you should you know, be buying this cheese or not. Mm -hmm. Mozzarella cheese is made traditionally and in the healthiest way possible through a full fermentation process, which takes about eight to 10 hours. Mm -hmm. Throughout that eight to 10 hours, there's a lot of chemical and physical things happening to ensure that not only it's gorgeous and it tastes good and it has the right texture, but it's also as safe and nourishing as it can be. There is a modern shortcut version of that, which uses an acid, just like canning, right? Where you're right. putting the acid in, right. you, you add citric acid or lactic acid or acetic acid, which is vinegar in. And instead of going through that, that incredibly important eight to 10 hour pro fermentation process, you change the pH in less than a second, right? Immediately. Mm -hmm. And then you have something that looks like mozzarella cheese, but it's a completely different food. And if you're lactose intolerant, you can really tell the difference because none of the lactose has been taken out of it. So the quick sort of hack is pick it up. It doesn't matter if it's floating in its brine, in, in, in a brine, or it doesn't matter if it looks like a ball and it doesn't matter if it's got Italian words on the labeling, <laughs> it, turn it over and look at the ingredients. If it says anything acidic on it, citric acid, lactic acid, acetic acid, vinegar, whatever, then put it and realize that it's not real cheese. And I put it right back on the shelf and look for something different. Um, as far as grains are concerned, um, there is, think, think about this, grains, nuts, seeds, legumes um, are all the babies of the plants. And if plants are engaged in literally chemical warfare with the outside world, which they are, mm -hmm. and, it's, and, and, it's, and it's for, you know, evolutionary purposes. It's for, it's for it, the sole purpose of that is to make sure that that plant can procreate and the baby plants can then procreate and the species can survive. There's a lot of effort getting put into making sure that the nuts, the seeds, the legumes, the grains, all of it are protected. 
Yeah. And he, and if you think about it, if you look at a, if you look at a, a wheat berry, for example, or even a, a, a pumpkin seed, or those are chemically and physically designed to withstand the digestive tract of the animals that are eating. I mean, the way that this whole process works is that the fruits or what have you attract um, animals to eat them. Mm-hmm. And then the seeds or the grain, whatever, goes through the digestive tract and out the other end and gets, and gets you know, it's dumped in a pile of manure so it can make baby plants. Here we are trying to overcome both the physical and, and chemical protective mechanisms of those things and get nutrition from it. Right. And it's a ridiculous thing. It can be done, but it's not as simple as grabbing a, a nut and eating it or grabbing a seed or grabbing a wheat and eating it. We have to do something to it. So we, the, they should be soaked. They should be sprouted and or they should be uh, fermented and soured from it start with sourdough bread sourdough it's got thankfully it's gotten a bunch of publicity since the since the pandemic began everybody started making sourdough bread right sourdough right it's a completely different food than, than wonder bread is Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and the things you mentioned are like can be done on your countertop. That's what's neat. You know, like it doesn't have you don't have to have a big like, you know, facility and research lab and everything to start implementing some of the stuff in your home. Absolutely. Absolutely. I like some of the points that you said, you know, like know your growers. We have tons of farmers markets here. So there are people I always say like, if your farmers are doing things correctly, whether they have a USDA organic, you know, certification or not, they're happy to share with you all their practices and how they treat the soil. Like they will brag on all the things that they are doing. Just sit down and talk with them. You know, eating seasonally or in rotation, I think is like super helpful and awesome. And then just, you know, you can buy sprouted grains. You can buy sprouted nuts and seeds. I know you mm-hmm. can find them locally here if you yourself don't want to do those processes yourself. And then I know I wrote down to like the nose to tail method. It made me think of my Italian grandpa. Like that man could strip a chicken wing. Like there would be <laughs> nothing left of it, you know, but they also would eat the, the like all the organs and they called them gizzards. They had the Italian American festival every fall, like around this time. And like, they were just, they would line up for these things. Like we were, they're eating these bowls of something in sauce and you all different shapes and grossness and they look chewy and they're hanging out of their teeth and they just would line up to eat it. But that was the organ meats. Like they knew to eat all yeah. parts of the animal back then too. So this is like super cool. Okay, but you do have online courses, right? So if people are like interested and want to hear more or start to dive in, you you kind of mentioned that. Um, you want to share with everyone what you provide? Sure, absolutely. And let me say th- these courses are important to, to in, in two different ways. Number one, if you want to start making a lot of these things from scratch, and hopefully some of what I what I suggested resonated with you. And, and there is a really important reason to make these things from scratch for optimal nourishment for, you know, nourishment in every way, not just the food, but also that connection provides a lot of nourishment for you and your family. Then, you know, these courses really go back to the basics and, you know, how to home butcher, how to make cheese, how to ferment dairy, how to make sourdough breads, how to do sourdough mothers. You know, we have a whole lot of courses on all of it. And, and we have, we do a lot of courses here in our, we have a beautiful teaching kitchen here. So if you're anywhere near the Eastern shore of Maryland, I'm located in Chestertown. We're only a few hours from New York city, about an hour and a half from Philadelphia, about the same distance from Washington DC, really close to Baltimore and Annapolis. So we're not that far, even though we're in a really beautiful rural area, we're not that far from, from, um, 
from where you might be. So please come visit us. We have a beautiful indoor teaching space. We hold classes all the time, um, but we also do a lot of courses and workshops online. We have some pre-recorded ones you can download and use do anytime, or um, we're always offering uh, live virtual classes to reach the largest amount of people as possible. So if you want to start learning how to make these things from scratch, and most importantly, um, not just how to do it, but how to do it in a way that your family's actually going to eat the food. Because that, you know, I've been doing this for a very long time. When I started down that road, I was loving what I was making, but nobody would eat it but me because here I am competing with all the other things that are, right. you know, our, our families have access to. So we, we've really been able to overcome that hump. So the other group of people that I, I think um, I know can very much benefit from, from these are somebody who's really interested in it. They know they're not going to make every bit of bread their family is going to eat for the rest of their lives, but they realize that learning how to make that bread from scratch or how to make that cheese from scratch or how to do, you know, ferment the vegetable, whatever, is going to provide them with the um, understanding and empower them in a way that allows them to go into the grocery store as a completely informed consumer. And then you know which, you know, you, you, you what I love is you know, that kind of empowerment allows you to be almost um, immune to the advertising and the marketing that and the packaging and the shelf placement that the billion dollars in the food industry oh, yeah. is all putting into it. And you can go and say, you know what, that's the best option for me. I'm going to bring that home to my family. Mm -hmm. And the other added benefit of that is not only is your family going to be nursed, but you're going to be spending your hard earned money by supporting that food producer that's actually doing mm -hmm. it right. So these, uh, we, we love, we, we absolutely love these courses. Now here's something else that, that's, that's really cool. Um, Years ago, when we started down this road, um, trying to learn all these things to nourish um, my own family, I it, it was a learning curve. And you know, you're not going to be able to cook all the food from scratch. You know, it, 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 we did, and we do. That's exactly what we do. You know, we cook everything entirely from scratch at home. And I, I realized that my wife and I dive into rabbit holes, and you know, and and maybe that isn't for you, and that's absolutely fine. Learning how to do it is incredibly important. But the other, the, we've taken the next step. Once we've realized how incredibly important and, and, and this this approach is to creating real nourishing nourishing food, um, we wanted to share it with the community as, as much as possible. So one thing we did was, was write the book, Eat Like a Human. The other thing we did is create this, the Eastern Shore Food Lab and the teaching space. Um, but the other thing that we did is we opened the Modern Stone Age Kitchen. And the Modern Stone Age Kitchen takes everything we talk about in the book, the kinds of things we talked about here uh, on this podcast, and actually put it into practice. And everybody said, you can't do it. Like, there's no, you, you might be able to cook this for yourself at home, but you're never going to be able to make it and stay true to, you know, all of your beliefs in this and be able to, you know, have something that's actually sustained itself. And let me tell you what, it can be done. We started... Um, we started a couple years ago, my, my oldest daughter started the sourdough bread business at the beginning of COVID, and it's now grown into a full service place. And we have 15 employees working now. We have an incredible team and we are just making real incredible nourishing food. So the cool thing about the classes is that we're actually doing it at a scale that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we have, we have a lot of information to share and for anybody who just actually wants the food, come on in and, and you can get it. We'll make it for you. But um, we have, there's a couple places to find us. Um, modernstoneagekitchen.com is the Modern Stone Age Kitchen website where you can find out all about the food and events that we have. If anybody's interested in anything that um, we talked about here, sign up for our newsletter. We send an email out every Monday that has a ton of information 
Um, it has a new blog post, but it also has a lot of the events that we're doing. And I'll tell you about one in just a moment. And then if you're interested in more of the, um, the ancestral part, the ethnographic stuff, the archaeological stuff and the classes, then uh, my own personal website is eatlikeahuman.com. And you can find out all of those things there. Anybody who's in the area or doesn't mind traveling, I just got to put a plug in very quickly for an event we're doing in November. November 5th, we're having a meetup. Here. Um, I know some of you might be familiar with what meetups are and yeah. it's M-E-A-T. Um, typically it's it's about just meat. Uh, we're this this event, uh, we have a lowercase M and then the eat up is all capitalized. So it is an, a, certainly animal based, but it is not just about meat. It is about using the entire animal. And it's also about you know the other kinds of uh, aspects of, of food processing in our diets that can be um, very nourishing as well. We are going to have Sally Norton, who I mentioned speaking. I'm going to be doing a pig butchering demonstration, and then we're going to have some awesome people: um, uh, Bronson Dant, Natalie Grasso, uh, me, uh, Sally Norton, Dr. Stephen Hussey, and Dr. Gary Schliffer, who's coming all the way out from LA, are going to be doing a big Q and A thing at the end. So, if you want to come together and get inspired by a bunch of amazing people and uh, eat amazing food, then, then look us up. We have information online about that. And on social media, finally, at Modern Stone Age Kitchen and at Dr. Bill Schindler is a great place to, to keep up with what we're doing. And it's so fun to follow you guys because they're showing all the food that's coming out of the kitchen and what they're making <laughs> and all. I feel like I've been in your kitchen before, even though I haven't come up to your neck of the woods. I really wish I lived closer because I would love to come. Okay, so I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this one last question. All you right, are, go ahead. You are on the Weird Works podcast. And so I need to know what is one of the weirdest foods or rituals you have partaken in? That's a really <laughs> good <laughs> you know, ladies and gentlemen. I did, I did a piece for a local news station about seven years ago, and I was and we were doing this thing, and they asked me, no, I think it was live too. And said, what's the weirdest food? Because we were talking about eating insects, doing all these crazy things, and they said, What's the weirdest food you ever ate? And I looked at them and I said, McDonald's. <laughs> ah, but um, but that's a, no, so we had um, let's see, a, a couple of very strange real quick, uh fermented shark in Iceland was uh was was pretty weird but probably the weirdest thing that my body when i ate when i consumed it my body you know we, we drank we've drank blood in kenya in kenya we've done a bunch of different things eating insects all over the place but when i was in mongolia they make a i told they ferment everything uh, especially dairy they take mare's milk which is, has an incredibly high sugar content Mm -hmm. um, and they ferment it and create a beer out of it. Oh. And because there's so much sugar, it actually is, is producing alcohol. Wow. And then they take that, and that beer's, beer's good. It's got a low alcohol percentage. It's just like two and a half percent or something like that. But yeah. then they take that beer and they distill it into a, a milk vodka. And that was probably the weirdest thing I've ever eaten and or consumed and I brought some home. I smuggled some home in a, in a, in a water <laughs> bottle and I had so everybody in the family tried it. And yeah. my son, who at the time was, I think, 10, he uh, he said, Dad, this looks, smells and tastes like liquid blue cheese. And it, it, and it did. It absolutely did. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's the awesome. thing. I'm so glad I asked you. I knew you were the exact great person. I'm like, if I don't ask him this question, I'm going to be so mad. <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much for spending time with us today. It's been amazing. I know I've learned a ton. I'm sure our audience is going to be able to implement, and I do hope that they follow you. Um, thank you. It's just been amazing. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Awesome. Well, until next time, this is Dr. Christy and Bill on the Weird Works Podcast. Your health and how you feel on a daily basis directly impact your mental, emotional, and spiritual health. We will help you reprogram your way of thinking and be on a plan that works for your body instead of against it. It is time to rewrite the false belief that health abnormalities are normal and that it just is what it is. You do not have to live with feeling less than 100%. We invite you to take a serious look at how you feel on a day-to-day -day basis. Is what you're doing working? Do you want to learn how to live a more holistic life that's still enjoyable and fun? The 90-10 lifestyle can be the bridge from subpar results to the vibrant and abundant lifestyle that you've been looking for. So click the link by this video so you can get started today. We truly, truly know that this program can change your life. We'll see you on the inside.